Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you would, join me in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to kind of remind ourselves of a couple of things and then try to round off the, the chapter today if we can. I know last week was a little bit uh, deeper than usual and maybe a little more Bible study than sermon, but I felt like it was, it was important to be able to set terms and understandings in place and uh, to be able to kind of launch from there. And so I'm going to kind of not necessarily reduce its meaning today, but kind of, kind of make some uh, sweeping understandings so that there's some continuity. Uh, so let's go ahead and begin in verse 1. I'm going to read and then uh, sum up and then we'll move forward. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So two things here he's giving them at the very beginning. Uh, and I don't believe that these are just simple how do you do's, but grace and peace to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Now, that beloved is, of course, Jesus. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, the beloved... Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so Paul begins by saying that he is an apostle by the will of God. Therefore, it is by the will of God that he sends this letter to the church at Ephesus and therefore to the church of Jesus Christ. This letter, this idea, this understanding is what God wants them to know about their identity. Now, I want you to think about Paul's life for just a second. I'm going to take a little bit of a sidebar. Think about all the things that Paul has experienced up until these moments. Paul has not been to the church at Ephesus in four or five years, although he planted this church originally. And, but before Paul pastored the church at Ephesus and planted it, he, was, uh, you know, he, he experienced quite a life. In fact, when he thinks about himself, that's typically what he goes to. Is, uh, is who he used to be. And he even calls himself the, the chief of all sinners or the least in the kingdom of God because Paul was, uh, though he was very zealous, Paul was uh, incredibly faithful 
just in the wrong direction because Paul was trying his best to, to save God's reputation against all of these Christians. Paul made it his life to try to kill and persecute as many of them as he could to put them down so that they would not have influence and do damage long-term to Judaism. Now, this is very important because this is kind of a ghost that follows Paul. So when Paul talks about grace and when Paul talks about mercy, he's not speaking as one who doesn't understand the ghost that haunts our past. Paul very much gets it. In fact, if I were to, to have to make a decision on that thorn in the flesh that Paul had, a lot of people say it was relational or maybe blindness or some sort of thing. I think it was the ghosts that kept chasing Paul. These things that kept holding him back because they were struggles for him to stop remembering who he used to be. He brings it up almost in every letter in order to find some common ground with them and trying to maybe outlive that. I say all that to say this. It was Paul whom all of the, the Jews at the day when, when Stephen was given his testimony and they laid all of their clothes down at, at Paul's feet, at Saul's feet, uh, because he was kind of the, the leader when they were stoning Stephen to death. This is an amazing event. And Paul was the chief at that moment. But Paul says that his apostleship is by the will of God. Now Paul recognizes that everything that happens in a person's life can be used for good. All things work together for good, Paul would say. If it hadn't have been for my worst moments, I wouldn't be able to understand grace and peace and mercy. If it weren't for my worst moments, I wouldn't be able to plant churches with passion and authenticity I wouldn't have learned the things that I've learned. It wouldn't have, you know, kind of poked me in the right direction and moved me in the right direction if I hadn't had all of this baggage. See, it's actually the baggage when it's brought to the cross, then it begins to be redeemed and reconciled where we can actually have ministry. I think this is why Paul wrote to the church at Corinth when he said, everything that you've been through, those of you who have experienced comfort from God in any way, find other people who need that same comfort from you. So I just think about the worst days of Paul's life and how he's able to say, but I'm an apostle by the will of God. Everything that, that has brought him to this moment has been used for good. So just take that and put it in your pocket. And when you wish that you were in a circumstance that you're, that you're when you wish you weren't in a circumstance that you're in, Know this, God has a purpose for that circumstance because he also has a future for you to be able to give away what you're learning. But if we internalize it, we keep it secret, we live in the dark all the time and we stay paralyzed, all of our pain, all of our darkness, quite honestly, is just in vain. All right, so Paul is uh, writing to these faithful, holy people. Uh, and he offers two things. We've already talked about that, but he offers grace and peace. Now, I want to stop there for a moment and remind you, last week I said that Paul always begins every letter with grace and peace, but to the pastoral letters, to Timothy and to Titus, he included mercy. And I want to talk about why Paul would say grace and not mercy. And, and here's why. This comes from, you know, just be patient for a moment, but this comes from the, the Greek understanding of these, 
of these primary words. Grace, for instance, we all know we're taught it means unmerited favor or undeserved favor. What it means is when God gives you things that you do not deserve. That's what the word means. When God gives you things that you do not deserve. For instance, when he gives you heaven, when he gives you healing, when he gives you hope, when he, uh, when he re- removes uh, you know, the different obstacles in your life and sets a path and a vision for you, when God gives you his presence, when God gives you his spirit, when God gives you fruit, when God gives you his gifts, all of these things he gives because of his grace, because you sure don't deserve them. And a lot of times we walk around as entitled Christians like God owes us something. And we need to remember, but it's by God's grace that we have anything. Now this, I want us to contrast that with the word mercy. And mercy means when God withholds things that we do deserve. So when, when God withholds guilt, when God withholds shame, when God withholds hell, when he rebukes the devourer for our sake. These, these are mercies of God because there are a lot of things in our life that would hold us back. Amen. When you look back and you see things that you wish were not there and it's the mercies of God that keeps the consequences of those things, of those days from sidetracking us or defeating us. This is very important distinction as to why Paul, so mercy is the thing, and I'll be very loose with this, but I would encourage you to write this down. It might, it might quite possibly change your life. Mercy is the thing that God gives us when he helps us forget who we were. And grace is the thing that God gives us when he wants us to remind us of who we are becoming. And so I think that's why Paul often says grace to you because he's trying to point into a future, not continue to clean up the past. But the first thing that Paul talks about in this grace is holiness. So it matters, but so many Christians get stuck in the wrong direction. And we get paralyzed by our past sin instead of being able to walk with power in the grace of Jesus Christ. And I want you to say amen. If you're not going to say it out loud, at least say it in your spirit because you need to hear yourself say this over and over and over. I'm telling you, it will, it will transform the power that you walk in to know that you can walk in grace instead of, oh, I know what I've done. I know who I am. I know there's no way God could love me. I'm just going to fake it to all these people. And I don't want to get too close to them because they'll eventually figure out who I am. I tell you what, I'm just going to stand over here in the corner in my Christian faith. It's not how God called us to be. That's why Paul is constant. Now to us, we hear grace and peace and we don't think much about it. But when the early church is hearing these words, they're thinking about a Thank God I'm not who I used to be. I have a new identity now. And peace. And so God is offering peace to them as well. The peace, that the word actually means tranquility and tranquility means two things. It means having peace of God The peace of God simply means the ability to get through difficulty with his presence. And the peace with God means to be satisfied with your relationship with him. These are very important distinctions of peace. It was the the thing that Jesus promised his disciples before he left. My peace I leave with you. Not the peace that the world gives. And so many Christians get hung up satisfied with the peace that the world gives. Jesus said there's a whole other peace. There's a peace that he gives. And his peace is permanent. 
And so many Christians move from peace to peace, from mountaintop to mountaintop, instead of being able to live here in peace. It's the very thing that Jesus said when he walked into the room, in the upper room after his resurrection. Remember what he said? The very first thing the resurrected Jesus said, peace to you. So verses 3 through 6, quickly, he tells us the blessings that the Father offers. I'm just going to remind you. Number one, he chose us. Number two, in verse 5, he chose us to be holy. Typically, we think of that word holy as a negative word, a very restrictive word, uh, a word that has a bunch of do's and don'ts. But holiness actually means completeness. It means, it means to be complete, to have no missing parts whatsoever. It means to be completely remade the way God intentionally made us to be made to begin with. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't mean a, a way of life. It means to be unbroken. And so when we are holy people, it means that we are completely one. And so when he calls us to be holy, most, most people, and it's a slippery slope, even for Christians, it's really, really difficult. to. For, this is why this book is so important because it serves as a reminder of our identity. Because even, even well-meaning Christians forget quickly and they start looking for completeness in money, in relationships, in power, in reputation, in whatever. Insert issue here. And when one doesn't satisfy, we move to the other. We move to the other. We're looking, all we're looking for is to not feel broken anymore. And here Paul says there's only one source of that. And it's to find your identity in the Father, to know who He is. To live holy and not your, quit, quit trying, quit working on it. You can't get there from here. He's the source of it, which means he's the giver of it. The only way that you can be complete is to trust in his completeness and to find your identity in him, not in your income or in your reputation or in your sphere of influence or your relationships or your marriage or your family but to find who you are in him. I know it seems simple, but the only source of completeness, of holiness, is, is from the Father. And by the way, here Paul says, he wants to give his completeness to you. He doesn't want you to be broken. He also gives us blameless. That's one thing to be holy positionally, you know, to be seen as holy. It's another thing to be blameless, which is another gift that he gives us, and that's an incredible gift. He gives us positional holiness. That's why he calls them saints. But it's another thing to be able to live in such a way that he doesn't blame us. You know, it's, it's one thing, when you have children, it's one thing to to not make them pay consequences. It's another thing to constantly be shaking your finger at them. It's one thing to say, you know, I'm going to let you get away with it this time and then, and then constantly hound them about the thing you let them get away with. God doesn't do that. God, God positions, positions us in holiness and blamelessness. 
And if that weren't enough, verse six says he makes us as his own. He, he adopts us and he makes us sons and daughters just as Christ is a son. So he supplies our greatest need, which is brokenness. And then, so he gives us his character and then he gives us his presence. This is incredible. The giftings of the Father is incredible. And I want us to remind ourselves as we shift into the second section here in verse 7, the blessings continue, but the giver changes. And he doesn't necessarily tell us that the giver changes, but you start to notice that in verse 6 when he says, the beloved, and then he shifts gears in verse 7. So let's begin reading in verse 7. In him, that is the beloved. Now we're talking about the blessing of the Father, the gifts of the Father. Now we're talking about the gifts of the Son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on on earth. Pretty powerful statement. Verse 11, he goes on to say that in him we have obtained an inheritance because he predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. I just want you to hear this again. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The first word that I want us to look at is the word redemption. That's the first gift that the son gives. So the father gives us identity. The father gives us adoption, which gives all these other gifts. So it's the, the father's gifts are the door that unlock the son's gifts. The first gift is redemption. It's a very interesting word. There's lots of words that could be used here, but this word is the word apolotrosis. It means to be released because a ransom was paid. Someone was holding you ransom, and someone chose to pay it for you. It has, it has two direct translations. One is emancipation. You know what emancipation means? It means to be set free from the guilt and the punishment and the power of sin. Here, in fact, Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Not sinners, but whoever commits sin. I mean, this is one sin. What are you? A slave to sin. Romans seven fourteen. For we know that the law is spiritual, Paul says, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Galatians three thirteen says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. The second word, not only emancipation from the curse of sin and the, the law of sin and the slavery of sin, but it means to be restored to true liberty. Actually, what it means is you're not a former slave. You are a son and a son indeed. You no longer have any direct contact or remembrance of the slavery to sin that you once experienced. It's restoration to go all the way back because there's residue in you, see? If you happen to have lived the perfect life, there's still sin residue in you because of Adam, because of your carnal nature. Now listen, I know that you're not perfect. I know that you have sinned. 
so I just want to make that clear for those of you who are like, oh, he doesn't know. I don't know about your specific sin, but I do know that we are all sinners by nature and by action. But this particular ransom goes all, not just for yours, goes all the way back to the very beginning one. The theological word for this is justified. And let me, let me share this with you really quickly. I know some of you have heard it before. But the word justified means just as if I'd never sinned. It doesn't just free us from the curse of sin. It makes it as if it never occurred. It's a beautiful picture, this word, redemption. The second word is forgiveness. It's one thing to be redeemed and to be bought back to be restored, it's another thing to be released from the consequences of your personal actions. And that's what we find in Jesus. We are freed from the consequences of our, of our sin. Now, there are earthly consequences that we have to go through. This is in reference to our relationship with God the Father. Jesus has completely forgiven that. There is, when you get, when you get to the throne room, there's no... It's your life has been forgiven. There's no weights and measures of, well, how bad was it? Did you do more good than you did bad? There is none of that. It's the thing that separates Christianity from every other world faith is grace. And he covers it. What kind of grace? Look at verses 7 and 8. The riches of his grace. And I love it. It's, it's one thing to be forgiven. It's another thing to be forgiven with grace. It's quite another to be forgiven with the riches of grace. But Paul goes one more step to be lavished upon you with the riches of grace. That word lavished, uh, or some of your translations may say abound, it in, in the original language, what it actually means is that there is a fixed amount that's needed. So if you look at your life, and I know there, you, you've got a great memory, but I'm sure there's things you've forgotten that you have done that deserve forgiveness. There's probably also things that you've done that you didn't even recognize were wrong. So let's just take all of those. If you knew what that need was, say, okay, well, on a, on a, on a scale from one to a hundred of terrible, I'm a hundred. So how much grace do I need to be forgiven and redeemed? If you've sinned to a hundred, how much do you need? A hundred. It's easy. It's simple math. A hundred. But God doesn't give you a hundred. How much more does he give? I don't know, but he lavishes it upon us. There's a fixed number that you need. That's not the way he gives grace. He lavish. Oh, and because grace is not dependent upon your sin, grace is dependent upon his riches of grace. It's not based on you. It's based on him. And it's according to, not out of, by the way, which is interesting because it could say out of his grace, which means that, you know, out of, out of, who I'm out of my chances because God is out of grace. He has a certain amount. It's, not, it's never out of his grace. It's always according to his grace because there's an unlimited amount. Isn't that beautiful? So I don't want you to miss the pro progression here. You move from redemption to forgiveness, not according to your sin, but according to his grace. 
but what grace? Not the grace that who you are, the grace that who you, of who you are in Christ. And he lavishes it. So that holiness, that purpose, that redemption, that forgiveness produces something in us. This is what Paul was saying. It produces something in us. It produces a supernatural ability to understand a mystery. A mystery, at least here. The word is mysterion in Greek, which means a puzzle that cannot be solved by human wisdom or ingenuity. It is not just difficult, it is impossible to know the mystery apart from God's wisdom and insight, it says here. Those two things, his wisdom and insight. Look, 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 at, look there, verse 8. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, and it's that wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. So, just again, where would you put a period in this sentence? It is an ongoing, constant and I've preached for a long time. I've probably heard that the Holy Spirit doesn't care about grammar more this week than I have anything that I've ever preached in my life. So uh, last week, if you didn't hear that, uh, this is one big, huge run-on run on sentence. But Paul tells us here that this mystery that he's about to give us can't be solved by human understanding. God's grace, God's character, God's presence, the gifts... Through Christ, unlock an ability to understand it. And what is it? Wisdom and insight is understanding and application. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. Here it is. To unite all things in him. That's the mystery. That's the thing that God wants us to know that is working. Everything that he does is working for this goal. To unite all things together in him, things that are on earth and things that are in heaven. All things find their completion in Jesus Christ. That's, what, that's, that's why you have every gift from the Son. That's why you have every gift from the Father. It's so that everything can be united together in one thing. So unity then comes from wisdom and insight. Knowing and applying, understanding and application. And that comes through all of the graces that come from Jesus. Holiness, purpose, redemption, forgiveness, family. To bring into unity. This is the work that Jesus gives us then. You don't get to do your own work. Every fruit, every gift that is given to you is given to you to accomplish this thing. And your gifting and your fruit and your talents and your abilities and your, all of these things cannot possibly produce them alone. Because remember, how could I be united? How could I bring everything to unity all by myself? That's kind of not the point. So when we are so selfish focused and we're only thinking about what I can get and what I can have in Christ, we can never accomplish the full point of Christ which was unity with one another. It was togetherness. It was family. It's identity in Christ. Not just the blessings of Jesus in my life and for my family. This is what Jesus, this was his mission. 
If you go back to when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer in the garden in John 17, it's what Jesus prayed for himself. It's what Jesus prayed for us. It was his mission. He modeled it for us from the very beginning. And then he told us, make disciples. It's our mandate as well. It was his mission. He was the model. It's our mandate. One with Jesus. All right, now verse 11. This, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. That word's interesting as well. Uh, and I'm only using the words that have a different definition than our English. When you think of inheritance, I know we usually think of one thing. Uh, but this word actually means to cast lots. It means to take a chance. Uh, and so what it, what it means in this context is that God, when it comes to you, rolled the dice. took a chance. He gave Jesus, his son, that you would have a chance and hopefully take the chance to say yes. Now, the next chapter in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, he says it's by grace through faith that we're saved. God's the giver of grace. God's the initiator of that grace. God's first act is to reach out of heaven into our life. That's his grace. When God extends toward us, that's his grace. When we respond to that grace, that's faith. When grace and faith come together, that's transformation. This is a shadow of that experience right here. Is that God took a chance on us. When we say yes to him, we're taking a chance on him. And that word is called inheritance. Here's the great news. And it's kind of a nod to free will a little. But, but here's the good news. When we think of inheritance, we think of, okay, well, when God dies, I get his stuff. Well, that's a long wait. That's not what the word means at all. This inheritance is much different. This word means as soon as you say yes in faith, to the chance that he gave you, everything he offers becomes yours simultaneous with your yes. So many times we've been taught that this inheritance is, a, is heaven. You know, and we talk about all, you know, waiting, can't wait to get to the riches of heaven and heaven and heaven and heaven. That's not what the word means at all. It's really bad theology. What the word means is as soon as you say yes to the grace of God, he rewards us with everything that he is, his character and his presence, which means that heaven isn't the inheritance. I'm sorry to tell you, heaven is not our inheritance. In fact, if you go to the book of Revelation, you'll find out that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, actually comes out of heaven, and that's where we spend all eternity. Heaven is not our inheritance. Jesus Christ is our inheritance. The kingdom of God is our inheritance. And I'm telling you, from the very moment that you say yes to him, you step into your inheritance. It's all around us. But if you're focused on this world and all that the world, this world has to offer, and you keep, keep waiting on things to die in order to benefit from them, you're never going to experience. You're, you may have, you may possess the lavishness of his grace, but you won't be able to walk in the power of it. 
Now watch this, verse 12. Paul tells the early church that they have been to the praise of God because they believed in Jesus so early. You see, they didn't have the written word. They didn't have Paul's letters. They didn't have the gospels. They didn't have books by noted authors. They didn't have podcasts and they didn't have historical proof and they didn't have archaeology and they didn't have magazine articles and they didn't have church history books to tell them what they came out of. Paul said that God is praised because they believed. And he is, Jesus said, remember, blessed is he who believes and has not seen. So the we that Paul is referring to is, is very, very interesting. The, the us. He's referring to those who have believed in the promise of God from the beginning. He is not this us changes right here the word the tense and so he's not talking about the us the writer and the reader he's talking about the the we because he is included as a continuation of the jews who have believed way back the promises of god that there's a messiah coming that's the we that he's talking about because we the jews the faithful jews that have believed from the very beginning and have walked faithfully and here we are but here's what Paul is saying, and I think it's, it's, it's really, really beautiful, is that there are Gentiles in the room now too. And they're believing from their beginning. When the gospel was first made available to them, and they have said yes. And God is putting them both on the same page. Some have been believing for 4,000 years. Some have been believing for about four months. And we are beneficiaries of the inheritance of the kingdom of God together. Beautiful. The final blessing is perhaps the most important one that we get from Jesus because without it, quite honestly, none of the other ones would be benefits. The final gift is found in verse 13. He said, after you have heard, that word is a kuo, it means to comprehend or to understand. When you have heard the truth, not just listened with your ears, but you have said, that's right, I believe, and then believe it, that means to place your confidence in it. You've accepted the truth, then you receive this gift. This gift isn't just given. There are, there are some prerequisites for this gift. Your comprehension and your obedience to the, all the previous one gets you this one. What is it? What's the gift? The blessed Holy Spirit of God. Now watch. It's the gifts of the Father that unlock the gifts of the Son. And it's the gifts of the Son that unlock the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has two directions that he works. He works in the present. We have been sealed. That word is special mark. And there's a reason why, several reasons why we use a, a special mark. One is like a notary public. It's someone who, uh, who guarantees a signature is genuine. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He guarantees that our faith is genuine. It also marks ownership. It's like a monogram. It's a proof of identity. If your kids go to church camp, you put their initials in some of their clothes so that they can keep up with it. It proves ownership. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He puts Jesus' name on you to prove ownership, and he holds that for you so that it does not get lost. He also, uh, the, the word also means to protect against tampering or harm. Uh, so the same way we put locks 
on something that we want to keep safe. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He marks us, puts a special mark on us, and holds us and keeps us safe, which is one of the reasons why I think, again, Malachi chapter 3, where God rebukes the devourer. He's able to keep us safe and preserved. And the fourth way is to indicate that the transaction is complete. So when you finally paid the bill, it says paid in full. But in this case, you don't have to wait till it's paid in full. You get use of it while it's being paid. Which brings us to the second part, verse 14, that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. You go and buy a car, you give them a down payment or you give them a a first payment and they let you drive the car away. I'm not going to ask how many of you own your own home, but most people don't get paid cash for it. Most people have to go and put a down payment. But you don't have to pay that house off before you're allowed to live in it. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit says, hey, I am making payments on your behalf. But you can go ahead and live here if you want. What a beautiful, he's got a present work in that he marks us today, but he's got a future work because he keeps doing the work that keeps us there. Now the Holy Spirit provides assurance that we're eventually going to receive what we can see now and experience in part now There is nothing like burning a deed or a note, not a deed, a note. Because now it's like, I've been living here for 30 years, but now it's mine. There's a big difference, right? I I suppose (laughs) there's a big difference. (laughs) The most important result of the Holy Spirit is not to provide assurance for us, though. That's just partial work. He tells us the full expression of the work of the Holy Spirit is to provide praise for God. Beautiful. Look, verse 14. The the very last part. Oh, well, let me just read it. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, what I want you to do real quick is to recognize that his ultimate goal isn't assurance. His ultimate goal is to provide praise for his glory. Go back up to verse 6 and you'll see that all of the riches that are ours from the Father is to the praise of the glory of His grace. Verse 7 through 12 tells us about all the gifts that we have in Jesus Christ. He concluded in verse 12 by saying that all the riches that we have in Jesus Christ to the praise and the glory of His grace. And now in verses 13 and 14, He talks about the riches that are ours in the Spirit. And He concludes with, to the praise of the glory of His grace. While they are our gifts, all of these things we are beneficiaries of, but they do not reach their fullest weight of expression. And we, until we take these gifts and we use them for his glory. That's where we see the purpose. Where God gives us manifold gifts. So many. And, and different gifts. Different fruits. Different opportunities. Different experiences. But when we take those and we give them back to him. We unite ourselves with him. And we become one with one another. And we become one with him. And that was the goal all along. It's the reason you have the gifts is not to be able to have a smile on your face, but so you can delight Him, give honor and praise to Him. And that's where the blessed life really begins, is to be able to live poured out 
for his glory, the glory of his grace. Yes, of course, God gave you blessing for you. But the goal of that blessing is to flow through you and to reconcile the broken world. And God chose to use you as the testimony of that. The perfect example. Many ways he could have done it. But God has done for you finds its fulfillment as the fruit of it returns back to him. What the Father has done is only possible for us to understand it by understanding what the Son has done. And what the Son has done unlocks what the Spirit is doing. And what the Spirit is doing is bringing us together and giving us family, giving us opportunity, giving us empowerment. So for this reason, verse 15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints. Finally, he took a breath, by the way. I want you to notice Paul has heard about their faith and their love towards their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love toward the saints. Their loyalty to God and their loyalty to each other, their love of each other. This is, this is then the fullest expression of the gifts of the Father, the gifts of the Son, and the gift of the Spirit is our loyalty to, to God and our love to one another. That's how you can know. Isn't that kind of weird? That's what Jesus said. To love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul echoes it a generation later. Because I have heard about that, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. And then Paul goes on, I'm closing, in verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Of, it's, by the way, according to the working of his great might, not, not yours, his power. You have what kind of power? It reminds me of uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. It says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. These are the two things that Paul said he wished that he had, that I may know him. And Paul knew him, by the way. And Paul knew the power of the resurrection. But I want more. I want to know him more. And I want to have more of the power of the resurrection. It's exactly what he's praying here for his friends. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So what Paul does is he explains to them all that they have in God. And then he prays that they will be able to understand God, that they will be able to experience his presence, and that they'll be able to exalt him as a result of those two things. And that's what I want to pray for you. And that's what I want us to pray for each other. That we would know him and experience him. That we would know him. We would know his truth. We would know his, have wisdom and insight. We'd know what to do. We'd know how to apply it. But that we would also have an awareness of his presence in our life. 
That's what I want us to pray for each other. I'm telling you, that's where revival gets unlocked, is being able to pray for one another. But it, it's, it's one thing just to be able to pray blind prayers. God bless them. God have your way with them. But what Paul has just says is we know what God wants for every one of us. We know the culmination of every gift that God has given to us according to his riches. So now that we know what we're supposed to be and all that we have in him, isn't it much simpler for us to be able to pray for understanding and resurrection power in our friends, to know how to pray when we walk up and down the street for homes and for people? So what I want us to do is I want us just to take a moment and I want us just to pray. God's going to bring people to your mind. And I want, I want us just to pray that in your own words, just pray that they would be able to know Jesus and experience Jesus. And I'm telling you, and you may not want this right now, but it's what God's called us to. I'm telling you, if you pray that enough for people, you'll start finding a voice with those people. Would you start praying for people that God would do that? When God would give his truth to them and we start praying that God would give, us his, give them his presence, we'll start recognizing that God will actually give them his presence through us and his truth through us, uniting all things together. So I want us, Cameron, go ahead and come, and Cameron's going to play, and I just want us to pray for just, just a couple of minutes. Maybe you need to pray for the people that are sitting around you. Maybe you need to pray for people that live with you. Maybe you need to pray for people that you work alongside or live beside. But as the Holy Spirit prompts, puts faces in your mind's eye, it's just, just to pray, God, if you'll just, I want them to know you. How often does Paul pray for himself? Very seldom that Jesus ever prays for himself. When you recognize the gifts that we have from God, our, our prayers can be pretty selfless. We have to pray for these gifts. They're already given. Your, your job is to recognize the giftings that you already have been given by the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The hard part of our faith is praying to be able to see those come to life in the people that we surround ourselves with. So that's, that's what I want us to pray this morning. uses prayer how so quick how so quickly when you pray for someone you're united together with them you care more you're more invested your questions change your attitudes change 
And when we change, the people around us begin to change. That they may know you, Lord. That they may experience your presence. That they may be united with you. They may recognize their brokenness and the completion that comes from your throne room. Thank you for the completion that we have in Christ, his redemption, our forgiveness, our adoption. We thank you, Lord, that we already possess your kingdom. And now I pray that through us, through our prayer, through our feet, through our heart, through our voice, through our our loyalty to you and through our love of others, I pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To the praise of the glory of your grace. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to ask you to stand with me. And I hope that you are, again, even if you cannot pray today, we would like for you to still stay for lunch. We prepared for all of you to be able to stay. We just want to walk down the hallway and and begin. Uh, After we give enough time, a little bit of time for people to be served, we're going to do a real quick, where are we? in the process Uh, and so I know that you'll want to hear about that and uh, but I thought while we're in here together let's just go ahead and pray over our food and then we'll we'll go listen don't forget who you are and if you're not if you don't know him and you're not experiencing him that's not something you can just stumble into so today if you want to know how you can know him so that you can experience him, I'd love to talk with you before you go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for all of your gifts. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And you don't play favorites, and we're grateful for that. And so today, Lord, I just pray that as we go, uh, that you would remind us of your blessing. Thank you for your spirit the guarantee, the reminder. Thank you for your son, the producer. And I thank you for who you are in our life. Thank you for choosing us and giving yourself to us. And now we respond by giving ourselves to you. Have your way with us. Part of all those perfect gifts is the lunch that we will share today. And we're grateful, Lord, that you are a good giver. Thank you for those that prepared it for us. Thank you for their generosity. And I just ask that the strength that comes from this meal, Lord, would be used for your glory. For you alone are worthy of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.